Hi and welcome to a new episode of Om Philosophers Live och Tanke, a podcast where we talk about philosophy and philosophical development with contemporary philosophers. I'm Martin Jansson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. Unfortunately, Fredrik Eriksson, who usually joins me, was unable to be here today. However, joining me today is Elisabeth Kjellekendamman, a chair professor in aesthetics at Uppsala University, a person who has worked on the cognitive value of art, neuroaesthetics, and the relationship between moral and aesthetic value. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, we usually start off our probe into the philosophical development of our guests from the very beginning. So my first question is, what is your earliest memory of philosophical thoughts? Right, well, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, of course, partly because we haven't quite defined what philosophical thought is yet. But I do remember, um, as a fairly small child, I would even say maybe one of my first memories um, being that of entertaining uh, all sorts of reflections and ideas and, and concerns belonging to what I would now uh, call moral philosophy. I think things to do with uh, injustice, things to do with uh, moral deliberations in general and so on. I think that's not unusual um, for for children. So I think... Um, those kind of questions puzzled me uh, fairly early on. Did you have many siblings? Uh, I have one older brother, okay. uh, and I'm sure I bounced many ideas uh, <laughs> uh, of him or many concerns. Um, uh, and uh, in general, um, I grew up in a family where um, these questions were around, as it were. So, especially, I guess, the, the ones with a kind of moral flavor. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think that was a, 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 a positive environment um, inviting that kind of reflection. Were your parents academics? Or? Uh, they are academics in the, uh, in the Swedish sense that they are uh, <laughs> university educated, but they are not uh, um, active at university um, themselves. No. I see. So did these thoughts and concerns stay with you when you grew up? Or? Yes, that's right. I mean, in various shapes or forms. Um, I think uh, my kind of uh, uh, occasional trips into kind of philosophical <laughs> reasoning uh, went up and down. But uh, I think important to me, uh, looking back now, of course, was when I as a teenager uh, started to study uh, more intensively um, maths and chemistry and, and biology and, and physics and although I did enjoy that um, there was always a sense to me that uh, I didn't quite understand why um, I couldn't be asking the questions that I was interested in <laughs> um, and I found it terribly frustrating in chemistry for example when I was told that um, here's just a rule or here's a name or here's here's things as they are and um and I think I mistook that for a frustration with science uh, up until the moment when I arrived at university and I took a philosophy of science course and then a propositional logic course and I realized that these were the questions I always wanted to ask about science. What do we mean by evidence? Uh, what is a law of nature? Um, you know, those kind of things. And so I kind of reconciled myself with my earlier frustration 
Um, and of course, that's nothing to do with the, with the disciplines itself. I think it was just the way it happened to be taught <laughs> to me <laughs> when I was a teenager. And from taking that course, you stayed with philosophy or did you have sort of other careers in mind? Okay. No, that's right. I mean, I think, in fact, um, I, uh, I was uh, quite set on, on studying law as a teenager. And in the last year of school, uh, I went to a French-speaking school uh, in Brussels. And we had the, um, the wonderful opportunity to study what was then called French literature, but which really encompassed um, philosophical thinkers like Montaigne and Diderot and Rousseau and so on. And so I made a U-turn pretty much in the last few months of school um, and decided that um, although I liked the rigor and, of course, the systematicity of, of what, I, what I imagined studying law would be, that I really wanted to apply um, myself uh, to, um, to philosophy. And um, so that opened up a world to me that was more kind of an intimation of things to be than the kind of philosophy that I was really attracted to. Um, but then that made me uh, leave Sweden, uh, abandon my plans of studying law <laughs> and, uh, and head off to the UK to study philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Oh, I see. So what kind of questions were you concerned with around this time when you got to Edinburgh? Well, I think I was mesmerized by most uh, kind of sub-disciplines. I, I really enjoyed logic and, uh, and also, as I said, the philosophy of science. Um, ancient philosophy seemed wonderful to me. <laughs> um, the kind of the, the way in which the metaphysics and the epistemology uh, kind of come together in, in, in studies of ancient philosophy. Uh, and also, and I, I think what got me in the end, <laughs> um, the moral philosophy, the value questions. Um, and that's what eventually led me um, to my uh, current research interests. Right. So did you begin writing a PhD in Edinburgh? Or? No. So after a few years of uh, studying there and also doing my uh, Master of Science there, as they call the kind of, uh, kind of a, uh, a text written master um, in Edinburgh, as in a dissertation written uh, based master, I headed off to King's College in London um, to work on uh, the philosophy of Kant. Uh, so I wanted to work on the third and the second critiques, so or the way in which um, we we think about how moral and aesthetic value uh, exists in the world, how we can come to have knowledge of that kind of value, what it says about us as agents of knowledge, if you like, and, and those kind of questions. I see. And uh, who was your supervisor? Um, well, uh, I worked with uh, various Kant scholars um, to begin with, including uh, Malcolm Budd and Anthony Saville, particularly. Um, and after about a year, uh, again, I guess there was a kind of uh, some kind of philosophical progress in my in my thought because I realized that this piece of writing was not going to be a scholarly piece of exegesis on 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 Kant, as it were, but rather um, a piece of current analytic philosophy on some of the questions that are central um, uh, to, to Kant's second and third critique. So I moved on and uh, started working with the late uh, Peter Goldie, uh, who became uh, a wonderful kind of source of inspiration and friend, and we continued to work together uh, for several years after I finished my PhD. 
So, did you stick with the question of the epistemology of value or? So my PhD uh, thesis uh, was about uh, the possible objectivity of value judgments. So I called it a, a reasonable objectivism for aesthetic judgments uh, towards an aesthetic psychology. And that last bit was a kind of homage to Kant in a certain extent, to a certain extent, um, because the way in which I uh, conceive of this question is not just in relation to the various parallels that exist with moral judgments. So, you know, what is the? How can we compare the, the objectivity of aesthetic judgment with moral judgments? Uh, but also the way in which these questions must start um, in a what you might think of a broader kind of philosophy of mind of trying to understand what is possible both in terms of of uh, perception and in terms of uh, our re kind of more rational abilities, or, or also our reason-giving uh, capacities informing judgments. Um, so uh, I, I guess there's a, a straight, a very strong element of kind of the aesthetic epistemology um, that drives that, that drives the thesis. But um, as I said, in broad in broader terms, also including the philosophy of mind, I guess. Oh, I see. So, so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your position? So, mm -hmm. wha what does it involve, uh, the, this reasonable objectivity? Right. So, um, it's, it's of course hard to, to summarize four years' work in a few, <laughs> a few sentences, but uh, let me try. Um, uh, I mean, generally, the thought, of course, is that, um, and this is true just as well of philosophers as the, the, the non-philosophers <laughs> around us, um, that we think of subjectivity and objectivity as two um, distinct concepts, which might even be mutually exclusive to a very high degree. Um, you can have different kind of views of ways of visualizing the relation between them according to a spectrum or a kind of a, a dichotomy, if you like. But generally, that something is either subjective or objective. And of course, one of the things that Kant teaches us is that this is an oversimplified way of understanding the relation between the subject and uh, the object of experience for the subject, that this is something uh, much more um, interactive, to use the current kind of word, um, in any case, that this is a relation which calls for a much more sophisticated understanding. Um, and so to that extent, uh, the fact that aesthetic judgments, moral judgments, and of course other, other kinds of judgments too, uh, are subjective in the sense that it is we, a subject of experience, who make them, that um, various aspects of that experience uh, affect the the outcome of our judgment, as it were, does not at all exclude, as I see it, uh, the fact that these judgments can have what you might think of as an objective standing. Okay, and this is also what what Kant says in the critique, in the third critique, the critique of the power of judgment, which is published in 1790. Of course, our aesthetic judgments, our aesthetic experiences, are based on our subjective experiences because there are experiences. But this doesn't mean that these judgments don't have strong normative normative claims. So that they they basically uh, ex that when we make these judgments, we expect others to agree with us, or that there is a sense in which it's not just uh, for you to decide whether you want to agree with this or not. There are reasons we can appeal to. There are objective features um, of the object of appreciation that we can point to 
um, to justify, to explain, and to ground our judgments. So a reasonable objectivism is basically the idea that we can give good, normative, well-grounded, non-agent-neutral reasons um, for our aesthetic judgments, and that they enjoy uh, a certain degree of objectivity, which is stronger than the one we usually tend to uh, accord to them. Uh, would it be too strong to say that sort of aesthetic conflicts or disagreements have sort of a reasonable resolution or...? That's right. Uh, and of course, this is also how my interest in David Hume's aesthetic theory and value theory comes in, that, that whilst there is widespread disagreement about aesthetic matters or um, questions to do with, with art, aesthetic value, artistic value, all sorts of things to do with aesthetic taste, if you like, as there is in most other areas of our life, moral disagreements perhaps most, most importantly, that that disagreement, of course, in and of itself, doesn't tell us that there is nothing to agree upon, right? Uh, so that we just need to dig deeper, basically. Right. Uh, would you say that there's always sort of a resolution to the conflict? There's always sort of a, a right answer mm-hmm. concerning... Well, I think, uh, I think there are many different kinds of aesthetic disagreements, right? So I, I'd want to be uh, a bit more specific before I give a yes or no kind of answer to that. So... Um, so say, uh, well, look, thinking just in, in general kind of philosophical terms, if I want to ascribe uh, a property such as elegance to an object of appreciation, and you say, no, we cannot <laughs> ascribe this particular property to this object of appreciation, then we're in a kind of P and not P kind of situation. <laughs> um, and so it really is a question of saying either it has something or it has not. In those kind of cases, um, I think there most probably is uh, a resolution to be had. But then there are other kinds of aesthetic disagreements, and, and you might take issue with the fact that we even call them aesthetic disagreements, right? Um, where it's more a question of perhaps intensity or degree of something. So you might say, um, um, that this is uh, fairly, uh, <laughs> this is this is very elegant, or you might even uh, call it beautiful, or something along those kind of lines. And I might say yes, that it was rather harmonious, or something like that. So, you know, I don't really see that in those kind of cases uh, there is a strong um, kind of, opposition. Uh, opposition, exactly. And in those kind of cases, we might want to say uh, that it's not so much a disagreement to be resolved as that. Um, it's an invitation to engage in a conversation about why we we chose to ascribe those particular qualities to things and not others. And then more often than not, there is plenty of opportunity for a kind of uh, getting closer to each other's positions, right? Whilst retaining your own individual perspective. Okay. Um, so, so this was sort of uh, topics that you dealt with in your PhD thesis. That's right. And when did you finish? Um, 2003. Uh, did you stay in London then? or? Right, so um, uh, I stayed in London for three years after that. Um, first on a research project, as a postdoctoral research fellow, first on the research project um, to do with the philosophy of conceptual art, um, because it struck me and my supervisor, Peter Goldie, that um, their... <laughs> there we were, sitting in the middle of London. And for those of you who know where King's College is, you'll know that it's on the Strand. It's uh, literally right by the Thames. We're overlooking uh, various art galleries, concert halls, and so on. 
um, that the examples that we as philosophers of art or philosophers of aesthetics kept using or referring to were examples or were artworks and uh, instances of that were made perhaps two, three hundred years ago. Uh, and there we were with the various modern art galleries, the Sartre Gallery had just opened, and it seemed absurd to us that we hadn't taken this into account um, much earlier. Of course, some works like um, the, the first kind of works of conceptual art you might think of as Marcel Duchamp's works from the very early 20th century, you know, were pretty much, um, you know, 90 to 100 years old at this point, and we still hadn't managed to incorporate them into our kind of canon of examples. Um, so we worked on the uh, philosophy of conceptual art. That was the first um, project, and I uh, actually had my vibe on the my uh, doctoral vibe on the Friday, and I started work on that project on the Monday. <laughs> so that was uh, so there wasn't much time for a holiday. <laughs> uh, and then that project was immediately followed by uh, another um, uh, research project uh, funded by the Arts and Humanities Council um, on the kind of more what we call kind of the empirical uh, aesthetics uh, approach which at that moment of course this feels quite a long time ago now but at that moment again hadn't really been addressed of course experimental philosophy was growing uh, people were starting to look at philosophical psychology and all sorts of connections between uh, a fairly empirical way of doing psychology and the connections or the implications it had for philosophy but it hadn't really been applied much to aesthetics yet and so we started thinking about that um, and worked on all sorts of questions to do with um, trying to understand um, the empathy that we have for fictional characters uh, to what happens in our in our brains basically when we listen to music um, so there was both an element of an overriding project, kind of, um, kind of, if you like, kind of a metaphilosophical meta project about um, how should we, as philosophers of art or philosophical aestheticians, um, you know, uh, take all this material and these kind of this kind of work. Uh, how we should how should we build that into our own work? But there was also uh, an attempt to address quite specific questions that have puzzled philosophers of art. Um, as I said, to do with the visual arts, music, and so on, and and see if if psychologists or um, had anything specific to say on those particular questions. Okay. So, did you carry out experiments yourself? I mean, concerning only on ourselves, I think. Okay. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. We didn't. Um, we we talked with various. Um, um, colleagues in different departments about the results that they had uh, got from doing things. And there was also at the time um, a strong uh, team of music psychologists uh, at King's. So we worked with them, but we didn't devise any any particular experiments ourselves, no. So, so your work on, on uh, conceptual art, did that pose any particular problems for your view of a reasonable objective, um, objectivism? <laughs> Because you uh, expect right. that there might be more disagreement right. for conceptual art. art right, of course. And this was also um, one of the driving forces behind the, why we wanted to, or the project and why we wanted to think about these questions um, uh, more carefully. Because, of course, as you know, uh, conceptual art really gives rise to a lot of strong feelings. <laughs> um, you hate it, you love it, you think it's useless. I mean, really, or not, of course, uh, conceptual art really seems to um, be so provocative just by its very existence. <laughs> um, 
And it seems fairly clear, even at a you know, brief kind of fairly superficial philosophical examination of the topic, that part of, of the strength of these feelings and re responses to conceptual art is due to the fact that uh, the targets of our judgments, of our, of our, of our responses, more or less emotional, um, you know, is really, kind of, they're all over the place. <laughs> we don't know what to expect of this kind of art. Uh, we think we know what art should be able to give us and we don't find it in this kind of art, so it, that perhaps irritates us or angers us. Uh, we don't know what to look for instead and so on. So it seemed a bit, it seemed um, like when we looked at the, the kind of the, the full gamut of responses that all of us have to conceptual art, uh, there was so much confusion at the, at the base of that. So we tried to draw some distinctions as philosophers do and um, understand a bit better what the goals and the, the general kind of artistic but also philosophical aims of conceptual art um, tends to be and see uh, the extent to which that matches our expectations uh, of that kind of art or not. I see. Um, so after you visited projects, did you sort of, sort of have ideas or thoughts that you felt that you need to develop or, or uh, other areas of application that you found interesting mm -hmm. or what did you turn to next? Yeah, and uh, you know, I... I uh, I'll admit that I was no enormous fan of conceptual art myself before I started thinking about uh, it in philosophical terms. But one question that, that gripped me uh, really early on, and that has stayed with me ever since in different guises, um, is the way in which also objects that are non-perceptual in an important way uh, can, can be the targets of aesthetic appreciation. So if you take... Um, the claims of conceptual art seriously and the ontological, um, certainly the ontological claims of conceptual art, which are in a nutshell um, that the artwork itself is not the, uh, the object that you might see exhibited in a gallery or in a museum, but is rather the, the artistic process or the creative process or the idea at the heart of the artwork. Then you start understanding that when I go to a gallery and I look at what is fundamentally just the end result of this creative process, the object, a rather perhaps accidental <laughs> object, uh, that I, if I'm looking at that and judging that aesthetically and trying to experience that as the artwork, I, I'm making a really serious mistake. <laughs> I'm, I'm really misunderstanding what conceptual art is all about. What I should be doing is engaging with the idea with the intellectual creative process. So when you shift, when you start shifting um, the target of our aesthetic appreciation or experience in that kind of way, and you start thinking, okay, well, um, of course we tend to assume that objects of aesthetic appreciation or experience are perceptual in some sense, right? It could be visual, but it could also be, of course, audible. It could be all sorts of different um, senses, but fundamentally it's, it's something that I experience uh, as a kind of through my senses. Um, so if that's no longer uh, just a, a given assumption about what it is we experience aesthetically, and you start opening up for possibilities like the fact that ideas um, can be that which we appreciate aesthetically or the target of our aesthetic experience, as it were, then of course there are many, many interesting cases. Um, so what I'm working on right now is the uh, 
how we might be able to account for the aesthetic experience of philosophical arguments, right? But I've also thought about uh, mathematical demonstrations, scientific proofs, and of course, I'm not alone in this. There is a there is a small but growing, I think, uh, team of, of philosophers who start to think about that. Um, so, from non-perceptual art, if you like, which which conceptual art is, um, you can transfer that to all sorts of other um, areas of our life. And and I mean, we talk now of mathematical demonstrations, scientific proofs, as I said, philosophical arguments. But of course, this is not new if we look to the history of philosophy. Um, appraising moral character, for example, um, in terms of its aesthetic qualities, uh, has been uh, more prevalent than not in our kind of Western history of philosophy in any case. And it's really fairly recently that we have got out of the habit of thinking of of, of that as a possible object of aesthetic appreciation. Um, so, so there are plenty of uh, area or questions to explore in connection to to that too. I see. So, Mrs. Super interesting and new to me. Um, it raises many questions, but one is if I can get, sort of get back to the, the issue of disagreement. Mm -hmm. So, if the object of aesthetic judgment, judgment is an idea, some of the disagreement about uh, um, what qualities to ascribe to mm -hmm. the artwork might be different people mm, sort of identifying different objects as artwork because ideas are more sort of fluent than physical objects and some disagreement might be traceable to people just having different ideas in mind. Would you agree with? That's right. And I mean, this is where I see this area as one that we're only just beginning to unpack, as it were, because you might say something like, well, Okay, so let's take. Um, I, mean, I mentioned justice earlier. Let, let's take let's take that example again. Justice or fairness or something like that. You might want to say that there is, there is a certain um, aesthetic quality to to that simply as an idea, if you like. Um, we might think of it as an idea that not all animals have. That it might be something that uh, also has a certain evolutionary history. In any case, you might think that justice is a beautiful thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, in simple terms, of course. Um, so that's, of course, at a high level of abstraction. And you might say, if you don't think that justice is a beautiful thing, you haven't quite grasped the concept of justice, because something like beauty, it might not be beauty precisely, but something along those lines uh, is just an inherent part of what we try to what we try to to say or do when when we when we or when we have what we have in mind when we talk about justice, but then of course you have um, other kinds of cases where you might want to say that um, not just justice or say courage for example um, is a beautiful thing, but that in a particular context or in a particular uh, time or event, um, the way in which that concept kind of was manifested, if you like, was realized. Uh, had certain aesthetic qualities. Um, so you might want to just specify all sorts of details around, around that particular instance and then explain why you think that also aesthetic value or aesthetic qualities applies in this case, in this very particular case, if you like. So I think it can work like that for ideas too. And then, of course, if you're thinking about 
conceptual art, it becomes an interesting philosophical problem, um, the extent to which um, a piece of conceptual art really can be as um, ontologically abstract as many conceptual artists claimed, originally at least, that these works were. So what I mean by that is, of, is that um, conceptual artists say that the artwork is now dematerialized. The material is the idea, kind of the, the thought is, right? But it's dematerialized in the physical sense. Well, um, is it really? Because, of course, if you want to express an idea, just like you do with words, uh, you need to choose a certain way of conveying this idea. In a piece of conceptual art, it will be by using certain materials, or it might be by not using any materials at all, but there's still some kind of selection process involved in how you want to convey or transfer this idea to someone else. And then there is, of course, the possibility of saying what we're, what we're assessing or what we're ascribing aesthetic value to here is not simply the idea, but also the way it is expressed in this particular piece of conceptual art, right? So, um, uh, so there is no, there is no simple answer to this. I think um, cases, yeah, range from from the way in which we could say, say, courage or justice um, or truth, perhaps, you know, is a beautiful thing to more um, contextualized, individualized uh, examples. But would you say that someone who is um, defending the idea that some of these ideas can be actually beautiful or or have a similar properties. Um, are they committed to any particular ontology behind these ideas, or, or sort of do they need at least some sort of substance to to the ideas? Not, not perhaps in in how they're realized in an art gallery or something, but they need to sort of make some sort of assumptions about the metaphysics of of um, uh, uh, justice or, or uh, courage. Yeah, yes, I think that's 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 also an interesting uh, line to take on this um, this kind of question. I mean, the assumption, of course, is that um, in philosophy, uh, like in a lot of art, you know, what we're after is some kind of truth or insight or, or understanding. Um, and it might be that sometimes, you know, we need to try out different metaphysics for uh, the concepts or notions or the just the things that are at play in our in our reasonings and in our argumentation. Um, so that that applies also to the kind of moral concepts that you refer to. Yeah. Just, I guess, still worried about disagreement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you have sort of an understanding of an idea as something that a functionalist might might have, mm -hmm. so having a particular idea is being disposed to think and behave in a certain certain way, mm -hmm. you might have something that is too idiosyncratic to be shared mm -hmm. um, uh, by to observers of, of the conceptual art. They're not really sort of meeting. Then there won't be perhaps actual disagreement. There will okay. just be a seeming disagreement. That's right. And of course, as I said before, in a just in a passing way, but again, it's also a serious philosophical 
topic to address in this context. You know, what 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 we mean by disagreement exactly mm. <laughs> um, in this in this kind of case. So, um, but it might be. I mean, this this is uh, you know this now we're getting into also questions about uh, you know the quality of arts artworks of of that kind. So, and I, but I think this is true for for most kinds of artwork. Um, assuming that art is something uh, that is important to us, as I said, at least partly for the same reasons that philosophy is important to us, that we're trying to uh, understand something <laughs> or get further in our, in our kind of uh, relation with the world in, in some sense, or clarifying that relation at least, um, then it might be that uh, an artwork which simply expresses something which is so personal and idiosyncratic that it really can't be tapped into uh, by other people or perhaps but just a very, very small group of people. But in any case, it's just not generally available as a source of, uh, of experience or a possible source of experience for other people. Then that might be one of the ways in which you might say uh, that, 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 is a, well, that that might be a mark of an artwork which is not very successful as an artwork. Right. It might be successful as a piece of therapy, Right. Um, uh, or That'd as a piece a of self-expression, yeah. <laughs> right? But um, I think that uh, good art is m most well is more more often than not <laughs> um, art that manages to um, appeal to or say something, if you like, or to give something uh, to people who have very different frames of reference, also than than the artist him or herself. Um, and it's making, uh, so if you think about conceptual art, a good piece of conceptual art should be a, a piece of art which makes available an idea uh, or make us, makes us reflect in some way, um, be it on a kind of political idea or a philosophical reflection of some kind, um, even if we're not, uh, uh, you know, uh, closely related both in terms of moral commitments or religious commitments or any other commitments to the artist so that we can access what the artwork is about um, as individuals. Uh, so I was thinking about the applications to math and philosophy of this idea that the, the aesthetic object is, is an idea rather than an, um, a physical object. Uh, what kinds of examples from philosophy, what kind of philosophical arguments do you use when discussing this? What, what are the most beautiful philosophical mm -hmm. arguments? Uh, well, I mean, I did not know until I turned to this material how many philosophers of maths turn out to be poets about, the, you know, what they do. <laughs> they wax lyrical about mathematics in, 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 the, in a wonderful way. Sometimes I think fairly misguided uh, because, of course, they're philosophers of maths. They're not philosophers of aesthetic experience. Um, and this is where uh, people like myself and my colleagues who are interested in this, you know, that we can, we can join our efforts, as it were, to try to understand these, these things um, better. But you can look to Albert Einstein talks about maths as the most beautiful thing. Uh, Bertrand Russell um, also, um, he talks about a cold, pure kind of beauty <laughs> um, uh, in maths. Uh, but of course, also scientific demonstrations. I, I mean, the interesting question um, with these kind of more, more um, clearly kind of cerebral or intellectual kind of endeavors, if you like, 
more kind of truth or knowledge directed in a, in a, in a, in a very distinct kind of sense, um, is of course that we think of the value of scientific demonstrations, say, or a game of chess is a, another example that comes up quite frequently, um, as, as having, well, we think of those things as having epistemic value, right? Uh, and that when we, uh, when we win a chess game or we get to the end of the demonstration or the proof um, and we sense that, uh, you know, we've, we've achieved something, if you like, that that achievement is purely knowledge directed in the terms of I won or I, I, I you know, I made it, I, I kind of I beat this thing. I understood. <laughs> I understood it, but also that there's a sense in which I, um, you know, that, um, how, shall I, how shall I put it nicely, but that, that kind of... An accomplishment. Uh, yeah, it's an, it's, an, it's an intellectual achievement. So my gratification or my satisfaction in that experience will be, will be purely epistemic. So where is there room for an aesthetic kind of pleasure, if you like, in that process? So some philosophers have said that when Bertrand Russell, for example, talks about mathematics as beautiful, uh, there is a real risk that what he or what other people like him are doing is to confuse um, the epistemic pleasure with the aesthetic pleasure. I cracked it, you know, Um, uh, rather than this is beautiful, or that that we take one to be reducible to the other, so that there is a real sense in which when we when we think of um, those kind of things as aesthetically valuable, we're not really talking about aesthetic value. We use that kind of language, but we're not. We shouldn't, <laughs> uh, because it is, as I said, fundamentally a different kind of pleasure, a different kind of value. So then the challenge uh, is to find room or find space for aesthetic value and aesthetic pleasure in that epistemic process. As I said, in such a way that uh, it can retain its distinct character and not be reducible to it. Right. right? But I'm thinking about <coughs> um, uh, a proof or an argument being elegant, for instance. Yes. In that case, it seems less of a risk of confusing it with something non-aesthetic mm-hmm. because the elegance is sort of so at the core of something aesthetic mm-hmm. and you can sort of and that feeling of seeing trying to prove something and then seeing someone else having proved it elegantly is right. is sort of you have everything there is epistemically mm-hmm. in your own proof you have proved whatever theorem you you've come up with and, and the other proof is is a proof of the same thing right. it just does it sort of more beautiful mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, um, in that case it seems sort of the confusion the risk of confusion is, is less there mm-hmm. I'd say would you agree or? yeah I think that that sounds right and I think you know um, one thing one hears sometimes in this kind of context is that uh, beauty is the mark of truth Uh, Now, I think that's that's problematic in itself, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the aesthetic qualities that tend um, to appear in our discussions, or certainly in in, in kind of mathematicians' discussions or scientific uh, discussions uh, of these kind of things, tend to be the same. You use the word simple, Mm. um, you know, and elegant. I think those are 
you know, two of the most recurring words, because there is a sense that if you can, if there are two avenues to some kind of truth or knowledge or insight about something, and one of them is simple and elegant, and the other one is not, then of course the first one is to be preferred. <laughs> now, again, you might really ask yourself the question why that is, right? If the end result in terms of the epistemic goals right. of, that we achieve are the same, uh, why do we have this idea that there is some kind of, um, well, that there is some truth to the idea that, that beauty and simplicity is the mark of truth in, in some disciplines? Right? Um. Right, but w would a potential answer be then what well, it's beautiful? Uh, or sort of, we choose this, this has an aesthetic value, and it having that value is sort of right. why we should choose, choose that. That's only one way to go. And, and then, of course, that just raises the, the next uh, big question, I think, which is how can aesthetic value, um, or in what kind of relations does aesthetic value stand in general? To in this context, cognitive value, and then of course in other contexts, moral value. Um, so, you know, we, we as philosophers, as analytic philosophers, we're really good at, at drawing all these distinctions, and it's an important part of what we do. At the same time, you know, we must also, I think, be aware that um, to isolate in this in this case now, you know, uh, different kinds of value uh, from one another as if they were kind of hermetically sealed <laughs> from one another is, is counterproductive. I think we must have clear and distinct concepts of different kinds of values. But it is one of the most important challenges, I think, if we are working in this kind of field, to think very carefully about the way in which these things can interact. Um, and so, you know, what does the aesthetic value contribute to the epistemic value here, because it clearly does in some way, and and you know, and we haven't thought about that uh, sufficiently. Right. Um, up to this point, I I would have assumed that sort of the value would be pragmatic or something. So mm -hmm. I mean, a more elegant proof is easier to work with. Right. Um, but I don't think that the pragmatic value of um, an elegant proof can explain the sort of uh, the sensation I have mm -hmm. when I see the proof right. and, and I judge it to be elegant it's sort of it's something else because mm -hmm. most proofs I've come across I haven't worked with or I have no sort of inclination to work with them at all I sort of I learned them in courses on logic or maths and, right. and then I sort of just I know them um, uh, but uh, in your opinion is there sort of is it, do you think it's, it's reasonable to think that there is an, an added uh, epistemic uh, value within the, the aesthetic value? Look, I think, um, I think, and this is, I think, the way in which, I mean, this is my, what, the kind of the red thread in, in most of my research, I think. Um, I think these two... Uh, kinds of values or even those two kinds of experiences um, uh, are much more deeply intertwined than certainly philosophers of aesthetics have tended to assume. <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, ever since Kant and uh, before that, of course, too, but maybe this is one of the ways in which Kant has not helped us uh, so much <laughs> in trying to understand aesthetic value better 
Kant is very keen. The first thing he does in the critique of the power of judgment is to say that aesthetic judgments and logical judgments or cognitive judgments are entirely distinct. And the, the, the root of the distinction has to do with the fact that aesthetic judgments are fundamentally grounded on a sense of pleasure. Um, uh, you, we can translate that broadly as a kind of some kind of emotional um, response. Now, um, whilst it's of course true that aesthetic experience is often emotionally tinged, aesthetic perception is often kind of laden with all sorts of affective or emotional responses, <laughs> it is also true and this is something, you know, I, I hope to readdress this balance. Um, it is also true that all the capacities, skills, abilities that we exercise in aesthetic experience are cognitive skills, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and capacities and abilities. So even, well, especially if you look at the more empirical um, uh, um, work that's been done on this, uh, you start understanding that uh, this rather artificial um, um, line that we seem to have drawn between the cognitive on the one side and then the aesthetic is something that's really just to do with our affects and emotions on the other side. Uh, it just doesn't hold, also in terms of our, our philosophical psychology, right? So uh, we think of the way in which... Um, uh, our, our ability for artistic representation evolved hand in hand with our abilities for language uh, and our more kind of overarching general skills. So uh, there, there is no real reason to think that somehow there is a part of our brain which is directed at truth and understanding and logic and cognition and another part of our brain uh, which has to do with aesthetic experience or pleasure in, in any kind of sense. That just That's just a... Um, that's just false. Right, right. And you can sort of see an, an echo of the Kantian distinction in the, the rise of, of cognitive science and, mm -hmm. and sort of the problems with cognitive science that arose after its maturity. That's right. Uh, yeah. um, okay, so we, we just to get back to your, your particular philosophical development, yeah. because this pertains both to things you started doing after your PhD mm -hmm. in London and things you currently do. In, in Uppsala. What happened between London and Uppsala? <laughs> well, um, in between London and Uppsala, I spent uh, about six or seven years working at the uh, University of Durham. Um, so as a, as a lecturer, so when I finished the postdoc phase, I moved up there and worked as a lecturer. And uh, that was in many ways a very nice department because there was a sense in which um, every area of philosophy, as, as long as it's conducted well, <laughs> um, is very interesting. And we should all, as philosophers, uh, be looking at each other's work, even if it feels like it's a million miles away from our own uh, disciplines and so on. Um, and I, I spent a few years there just um, improving my skills as a teacher understanding what the work is all about <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, yeah, forming forming my philosophical ideas and my future projects. Um, I was lucky uh, at whilst I was in Durham to um, to work with some people who were interested in the philosophy of archaeology 
And you might think, uh, what could the philosophy of ecology have to do with the philosophy of art or philosophical aesthetics? And it turns out it has a lot to do <laughs> uh, with one another. At least there are there are many different kinds of questions that are interesting. So um, I guess one of the research projects we haven't touched on, um, uh, but which developed during my years at Durham, uh, had to do with the research project we had on the ethics and uh, aesthetics of cultural heritage. Um, so trying to understand um, in greater detail uh, what uh, cultural heritage really is <laughs> from a philosophical uh, perspective and the way in which uh, the moral relations or the moral value cultural heritage has um, is deeply affected by the aesthetic value of historical objects um, or sites. So more specifically, uh, we try to make some progress on issues to do with cultural heritage um, destroyed in, uh, in war zones, in, in kind of areas of conflict. And I'm still working on this, but uh, this is where it started. But um, so trying to understand why we feel so horrified when we see um, objects of cultural significance uh, being destroyed as an act of war. Who, we, who do we feel is being wronged here? Is it the people who made them? Is it future generations who will not have access to these objects? Is it us? Uh, on the whole, how does the aesthetic character of these objects or sites affect their historical, cultural and moral value to us? And uh, again, the overarching question, of course, is you know, how aesthetically valuable objects or sites of cultural heritage sites or objects um, really represent something uh, which is so much more than just a pretty set of objects or, or, or a pretty place and that there is something um, that is damaged in terms of our integrity and our dignity uh, when these objects are willfully destroyed. Um, of course, you know, burning books at the, universe, at the library of Timbuktu and so on, you know, it affects us really deeply as human beings. And, and why is that? Um, so I was lucky to work with some really um, interesting archaeologists um, on this project, and I, and I hope to, to continue working on that. Um, okay, and, and this is the research that you, you, you carried out when you transitioned from Durham to... Uppsala or uh. yes I think of it more as a kind of a portfolio of research interests <laughs> uh, so you know these things come and go I yeah, guess a yeah. bit um, and I, but I, I, uh, I, um, I think it's uh, it'll be coming to the fore more over the next year or so I hope to I hope to write more on this topic over the next few months actually I see, I see. Um, so sort of a recurring theme is in your research seems to be the relationship between different kinds of, of values and yeah. how they relate. How do you go about answering questions like how, how does epistemic value relate to aesthetic value? Is there a sort of an mm. analysis of different kinds of value into components? Mm -hmm. Or how, how do you sort of um, uh, compare them or mm. sort of work on that question? Well, I think, uh, I mean, some of the work I've done has been um, picking up on a discussion uh, which exists in philosophical aesthetics and which has 
uh, received a fair amount of attention the last uh, 15 years or so uh, about how we should understand the overall value of artworks like uh, Nabokov's Lolita, for example, um, or any kind of artwork which puts forward uh, a moral dilemma or a moral perspective um, and the way in which the aesthetic and the artistic value uh, of the work uh, is really the, the kind of the, the result or is at least influenced uh, by um, the cognitive goals of the artwork or the moral perspective. So, so if you're thinking about uh, Nabokov's Lolita, for example, you're thinking, well, here is, a, is an artwork uh, which has different kinds of value. Right? So one might be the moral value of the moral perspective which is put forward, which is, of course, a reprehensible one, uh, some kind of legitimization uh, of pedophilia in a kind of an intelligent kind of way, which, which of course, makes it um, perhaps uh, less difficult to detect as such. And the aesthetic value of the artwork, which has which also contributes <laughs> uh, the, the, the ease uh, with which we read paragraph the par paragraph of the paragraph, the, sen the beautifully constructed sentences and so on. So in, in that kind of case, the question has to be, of course, can it be the case in some artworks, like in some imaginative scenarios, and of course this, is a, this ties into discussions in philosophy of mind also, are there certain morally reprehensible perspectives that we should kind of block out in imaginative terms. Um, and in this particular uh, example I'm using now, could it be even even further, pushing, that, pushing this idea or these questions even further, could it be not only that um, or not that we should not engage with this morally reprehensible perspective, but rather it is precisely in virtue of this morally reprehensible perspective that the artwork has a certain kind of aesthetic value. Right. So, would it have been would it have been an equally good book <laughs> if it had all been about all the horror of paedophilia and that had been the line that was told or the perspective that was kind of demonstrated? So, so all sorts of questions about um, artworks in general to I think more metaphysical questions uh, about the way in which would we should kind of carve up our kind of taxonomy of value. Right? Um, where does the aesthetic value kind of end and the moral value kind of begin, as it were? Um, and is that really the right way to think about it? As I said, it's, it's a constant battle between um, trying to understand the way in which, or trying to keep these uh, notions separate and apart, because they do pick out different things in the world, and at the same time trying to be open to a certain permeability of these boundaries in order to understand better um, how they affect each other, and if the, if it makes sense, you know, if, if these kind of impositions of, of distinctions and neatish boundaries <laughs> of our concepts is really something um, that uh, we have good reason to do. Right. Right. I see. I guess the distinction between, or sort of a relationship between the sort of um, moral value or, or sort of uh, admissibility of... Uh, moral perspective in Lolita and the mm -hmm. aesthetic value sort of a relationship between them is also highlighted in in, um, in the context where we have sort of an author or a sort of a creator of something that we find reprehensible but, mm -hmm. uh, but 
they have created a, a sort of a beautiful thing. And there might also be sort of a necessity in certain cases that our appreciation of an object depends on things we know about. Uh, That's right. And might be destroyed if we learn other things about that's right, and you know that that applies, or that could, in, in principle, apply to philosophy too. I mean, there are real and live debates about whether we should be teaching Heidegger, or you know, all sorts of philosophers who have uh, developed their system of thought from uh, a point of view or a set of commitments that we just do not want to endorse or be seen to enable um, in any kind of way. And uh, so, I, I see those those two kind of questions as quite closely related, actually. Mm. Um, is that something you work on as well? Sort of, um, sort of a person, the artwork relationship. Uh, no, I try to keep it to what you might broadly refer to as the kind of the content of the artwork. Right, right. But, uh, but I think those questions are really interesting. And of course, depending on your view about the semantic contact content of an artwork, whether that is really something that's solely determined by an artist's intention uh, or not. Um, then you might you might give a different answer to that question. But my, my view is that whilst, of course, an artist's intention uh, has an important role to play in the in the semantic content of an artwork, uh, it is also the case, and this is partly you know my interest in kind of historical objects uh, that that uh, kind of um, uh, supports this view, is that uh, of course as time goes on and as the world around but in this case, the artwork changes. Um, the artwork can uh, acquire more or new or different semantic content or different, different kind of meaning, if you like. Uh, and we see that with all sorts of examples where um, an artwork or a book is written. Uh, and of course, again, the parallels with philosophy can be striking here. Um, and then something happens in the world around us, a momentous event, 9-11 or anything that you like, and then we, we read the, the novel or the philosophical argument or, or we look at this object in a different kind of way and what we gain from it is quite a different set of insights. So I think uh, cultural histo historical uh, contexts um, can go straight to the heart, at least of what we can, um, what a work can mean to us as well. Um, so before we conclude, I just want to ask you, looking forward, what you'd like to, to work on but you haven't sort of gotten the time to yet. You mentioned that you're working on the, the project on, on cultural heritage, yes. for instance. Yeah. What else is there about? Um, I think I'd like to go back to um, some of the questions I haven't looked at for a while also in terms of the PhD thesis I mentioned earlier but but more more importantly I think I think it is time for a certain kind of taking stock <laughs> um, of all these um, strands of ideas and thoughts um, coming together I mean I mentioned earlier that I think you you also mentioned this that the relation between different kinds of values at the heart of my research and uh, that has taken me into many different directions. Uh, of course, they're all connected, right? And, and when you, we talk about it like this, um, uh, that might sound more obvious to me than it always was, <laughs> or at least that it, that, it, that it was in some points of my uh, my own uh, academic career. But but I, I look forward to to a, to a, um, a time I think in the near future where I can sit down and 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 
pull all these ideas together and and give a more metaphilosophical picture of of why why this is right so i talked about perhaps the most more abstract end of understanding the relation between different kinds of value and carving up our, our taxonomy of value in, in this kind of um way and, and i think that's where i would like to find some peace and quiet and just sit and and, and develop some clear lines about that okay thanks so much for coming <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we conclude, we'd like to talk uh, to thank uh, Humlabet and uh, Lamb Studion for the ability to record there. And we'd also like to plug our lecture series, uh, The Roadless Traveled. So check out our webpage at uh, www.fil.l.se uh, for information about that. <laughs>